Hello, and welcome to the Revelation to John. My name is J.R. Foresteros, and I am the teaching pastor at Beaver Creek Church of the Nazarene in Dayton, Ohio. You can find me on my blog at jrforesteros.com. And if you have any questions as you go through this podcast, you can email me at jrforesteros at gmail.com. That's jrforesteros at gmail.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast as well as to my sermon podcast by searching for me in iTunes or clicking the link on my blog. To aid you in going through this study, you can also download a couple of different resources, both the PowerPoint slides that I use when I teach and also a note sheet if you like to take notes and they're good things to save for later. You can download both of those things at my blog by searching for the Revelation study and then uh, each note sheet and PowerPoint slide is downloadable from the link on the sermon series engine each week. Finally, a note on the format of this podcast. Uh, I am recording this as I am teaching a class, so you often will not be able to hear some of the comments and feedback that the class members make. I will do my best to say those back into the microphone for the podcast, but in case you don't hear those things, uh, I'm sorry, that's just the nature of the format and my recording limitations. All that said, thanks a lot for listening. I hope that you enjoy the podcast, and without any further ado, here is the Revelation Study. Based on what we've been doing so far, if you had to identify a key takeaway or a central conflict for the book of Revelation, what would you say that it is? What, uh, From everything that we've looked at so far, what is the, the core problem that we're facing or, or even a, maybe a better way to say it would be why is Jesus being revealed to these churches? What, what, what's the central conflict they all have in common? How would you say that in your own words? Say basically to hang in there, you know, and, and believe in Jesus, and it will it will work out. Okay. Yeah. The good. Yeah. The uh, particularly what we're what we're dealing with is uh, there's a there's a strong pressure from the surrounding culture to compromise the gospel, right? And and we're going to unpack all of that as we go through this book. But essentially, yeah, all of these churches are being faced with: do I stay faithful to Jesus, or do I? Uh, do I give in and sort of get along with the dominant culture? And, and I'm not sure which of those to choose. And, and we saw last week all of the churches were responding in different ways, right? But but all of them were having to engage that tension somehow. And so that's going to be what we keep in front of us as we begin to move into the first major vision sequence, which takes place in the heavenly throne room. So... Uh, what we're going to see is John receiving a special vision now beyond the cosmic Jesus, which he saw at the very beginning of chapter 1. And uh, he, he's going to go on a, a trip. Uh, if you remember from the first week, one of the key characteristics of an apocalypse is that there's a, a journey involved that, that actually takes place in space. And so John is going to go on a trip. So that's what we're going to be doing. But uh, first, I want to go back and establish a little bit more clearly what the the tension is. And so I'm going to introduce you guys to a super, well, maybe not introduce you. You may have already seen this word before, but uh, a really fun biblical studies word, and that word is eschatology. Okay, has anyone heard this word before or familiar with it? It's it's a word that in the Greek means the study of last things. Eschatos is last, and then ology, biology, you know, ology, study of, right? So uh, this is this gets called the study of last things, but really what it is about is how humanity ends up where we are supposed to be. 
Uh, we all, every culture, every uh, people group throughout history has had this sense that, that there's something wrong and that the world is trying to get better. And, and we, we understand what you see in pretty much every religion, pretty much every political system, uh, is that there's a problem and it needs to be fixed. And what we all argue about is the way we fix that problem. And so eschatology, the study of the last things, uh, is essentially how does everything get worked out in the end. And every political group, all uh, nations, all religions, all make a claim about this. Everyone says, if you follow our way, then we will lead you to human fulfillment. We will take humanity to uh, the best possible thing it can be. So uh, Karl Marx, in uh, his Communist Manifesto, said that the, 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 uh, the big problem is economics, and everything's moving in such a way that eventually the proletariats are going to rise up and cast off the bourgeoisie and, and the ruling classes, and they're going to establish this new golden age of humanity. And that, that's, the, that's the communist ideal. And every communist, uh, every communist political system rules under some version of that promise, right? Uh, Adam, we- or, yeah, Adam Smith, not Adam West, he was Batman. Uh, Adam Smith, uh, <laughs> Adam Smith, when he wrote uh, Wealth of Nations, this was a, a capitalist manifesto of sorts. He said, if you just leave things alone and let people uh, work in their own best interest, then everything will work out and everyone will have what they want. And he, he also described in very utopian terms this sort of ideal place that would exist, this society that would exist if, if everyone was just allowed uh, to participate in a free market economy. Uh, every religion has their version of an eschatology, right? Uh, whether that's the non-existence of Buddhism or the everything gets absorbed back up into the um, the Godhead that Hinduism has, uh, or in, in we're going to talk about Christian eschatology in a little bit, but everyone has a way that things are going to get worked out. And what we call that is eschatology. So Rome had a particular eschatology, and it was called the Pax Romana, or the Peace of Rome. Now, the statue that I have here is a super famous one called the Augustus Prima, and this is a statue of Caesar Augustus. Uh, We actually found it, they think that it was a copy of one that his wife had on display in one of their villas, so it's apparently one that he was pleased with and approved of. And there's some interesting statements that are made through this statue. Remember that the ancient world was almost entirely illiterate. So if you wanted to create propaganda, it couldn't be written. Uh, So statues and artwork were a really popular way for governments to uh, propagandize their subjects and their enemies. And uh, Greco-Roman statues were packed with imagery. Uh, nothing, no piece of the statue was created on accident. So, for instance, in this one, it's, it's interesting that Augustus is dressed as a soldier. And the way that he's standing is a common pose that you see in statues for orators. So he's standing in as though he's addressing troops. Um, he, uh, there's all, you can get on Google and search and find a bunch of images of his breastplate. It's covered with images of military victories that he's won or different Roman gods and goddesses. And there's several images of the sun and the moon. And what those things communicated were this. Uh, Just the same way that the sun is always going to rise and set and the moon is always going to come up and go down, so too does Rome rule forever. Uh, Rome talked about uh, all the time. They said, you know, theirs was the eternal empire. 
It was never going to go away. It was always going to be in existence. It was always going to rule over humanity. This, this, was, this was their message that they always said. Uh, and then it's, it's really fascinating that uh, all this stuff going down down here at the bottom of the statue. Uh, you can see, I found a laser pointer thing for the, so you can see down here, uh, you can see that his feet are bare. Now, that's, we couldn't care less. We're like, okay, whatever. But in Roman statue making, only gods traditionally were depicted as having bare feet. Humans always, always, always had shoes on. It was just kind of one of the rules of statue making. And so it's interesting that Augustus had himself depicted not wearing shoes. He's also uh, being escorted, I guess, maybe, by this little Cupid, which is riding a dolphin. Now, Cupid was Cupid was the daughter, or sorry, Cupid was the son of Aphrodite Venus, the goddess of beauty, and then the dolphin was her animal, I guess, because they're pretty. Uh, and both... Oh, she came out of the sea. Okay, thank you. So... Um, so both Julius Caesar and then Augustus, who was his nephew, claimed that they were descended from Venus. Okay, it was so. This was these were ways of of asserting his divinity without coming right out and declaring himself a god. There were these, uh, well, really not so subtle ways, but there were ways of declaring that he was divine and that he was worthy of worship, and that by obeying him. You're obeying the gods, and then you're ensuring the eternal rule of Rome. Because, of course, Rome will continue to rule forever so long as they maintain the gods' favor. It's why it was very important to follow Rome's way. So, Augustus is the one who created the peace of Rome. Uh, he was. It's almost, it's almost impossible to overstate how brilliant he was. He was the emperor at the time that Jesus was born, and the empire that he established... Uh, what he transformed Rome into uh, really is, I mean, it's its just, it's, it's, no, it's like nothing the world has seen before or since. It, he was just an incredibly brilliant uh, governor and uh, strategist and all of that kind of stuff. And so uh, he established this peace of Rome, and then he said, basically, if you follow Rome's way, you will have peace. If you do what Rome tells you to do, if you uh, worship the Roman gods, if you get along the way Rome wants you to get along, then we will do uh, we will do for you. And so I found a couple of great quotes from some Roman historians. Um, this one is from there. You go. This one is from Livy. Uh, he was writing before Jesus was born, just sort of early in Augustus's reign, and he said this: uh, Romans are children of destiny. Lords of creation, fated to prevail over all other peoples. By the will of heaven, Rome is the capital of the world. Okay, so this is the way that the Romans saw themselves. Everything they did was destiny. It was what had been fated to happen. Their, ex their ever-expanding rule. I think Livy is also the one that said that Augustus was destined to have his empire bounded by the oceans. You know, anywhere there was land, he was going to rule. And so uh, Rome pictured themselves as just this ever-expanding empire that could conquer anyone uh, that stood in their way, and that was their divine destiny. It was, it was by the will of the gods that this was to happen. Now, uh, as you might imagine, that if you were maybe not uh, in the Roman Empire, things, or if, if you're not in Rome, things didn't go so well for you. So here's a guy named Tacitus, and he's the one who said, the Romans call it an empire... It is, in fact, murder and rapine and profit. They make a desolation and they call it peace. 
So he observed, once you get outside of the city of Rome, the peace of Rome doesn't actually look so peaceful. And, of course, this is where we find our churches, right? Our churches are at the far uh, eastern borders of the empire. They're about as far from Rome as you can get and still be in Rome. And so out where they are, the peace of Rome doesn't actually look so peaceful. And we saw that a little bit last week where we saw there's even been maybe some mob violence against some of the churches. And they're obviously suffering out there. Uh These are people that are not Roman, that didn't have a choice whether or not they could accept the peace of Rome. It was just something Rome said, well, here are your your two options. We can either come in and rule you, or we can come in and kill you. Take your choice. Uh, Rome was pretty famous for when they would negotiate treaties. They would, you know, they would show up on your doorstep with their giant army, and they would say, here are the terms of surrender. You can go ahead and surrender to us right now if you want. And if you said no, they would destroy you and then they would offer you the exact same terms of surrender afterwards and they became known for this so it basically became known um you're not going to get any kind of a better deal you might as well give up at the start because rome is going to win and then they're going to give you what they give you and so um it got to the point where people would just see rome coming and they would open the city gates and that would be the end of it rome would be in charge so uh all of that to say there was a very particular Roman eschatology, and that was that you do what Rome says. If you do what Rome says, then you will have uh, peace and prosperity, and all of these good things will come to you, and that's how the world will be a better place, was because Rome is in charge. Now, uh, traditional Jewish people had a very different eschatology than that. Uh, they believed that at some point, someday in the future... Uh, there will be this event called the Day of the Lord. And if you read through all of the Jewish prophets, they talk about this. You know, they talk about, behold, the Day of the Lord is coming, and, you know, woe is the Day of the Lord, and all of these kinds of things. And essentially, the Day of the Lord is the day that the Messiah returns, or uh, the Messiah comes to earth and brings with him the kingdom of God. And he establishes God's kingdom on the earth. He, he conquers all of God's enemies, and he establishes peace and prosperity forever. So the end result is essentially the same. Again, peace and prosperity and good things for everyone. Uh, But the way you get there is different. In the Roman way, it's through the peace of Rome. Rome brings it to you. In the Jewish way, it's the Messiah comes and inaugurates God's kingdom, and that's what ushers in this period. Does that make sense, how how those two eschatologies? Again, they're, they're actually sort of aiming for the same thing, which is peace and prosperity and the flourishing of humanity, but they have different ideas about what that's what it's going to take to get us there. Okay? Now, as you can then also imagine, Christians had yet another idea of what was going to happen because Christians believe that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, that he fulfilled the covenant that God made with humanity, and that in his death and resurrection, he inaugurated God's kingdom on earth. That he came to do what the Messiah was prophesied to come to do. There's a big problem, though, and that is you look around, and uh, you actually don't see a whole lot of peace and prosperity and good, goodness for everyone, especially if you're in these seven churches, right? I mean, today we can still look around and say, eh. We still don't see, we still don't see this, uh, this end of days goodness that, that we all long for. We look around and we still see all of these bad things that happen in the world and we want someone to come in and stop them. So we, we understand, and the first Christians were not ignorant of those things. If anything, they had it way worse than we do. So they were painfully aware that even though the Messiah had come, the end had not come. So they lived in this interesting tension that a lot of biblical scholars call the already not yet. And that is a tension between two 
equally true, equally scriptural ideas that you find uh, throughout the New Testament. First is what is called realized eschatology, and that's the idea that when Jesus died and rose from the dead, God's kingdom began. You can participate in it right now. I mean, that's what we believe. Right? You don't have to wait till you die. You don't have to wait for the second coming. Like, you can experience the Holy Spirit. You can experience the gifts of the Spirit. You can become a new creation. All of those promises that are made in the scriptures about being in Christ, those begin at conversion. So there's a real sense of which we say, well, it's already here. Like, we can experience the kingdom of God. But there's another sense in which what we would call an apocalyptic eschatology, it's still to come. That's why we talk about his second coming. We say, well, we understand, and if you have ever read Revelation before, uh, you know that it deals a lot with that. We understand that it's not here yet either at the same time. Like, there, there is still injustice. There is still sin. It doesn't seem that evil has been dealt with permanently. So it's, it's not here yet. But it is here, but it's not here. But it is here, but it's not here. It's both. There's a tension. And that tension is right now unresolved, and that's what we live in the middle of. Does that make sense? Okay, so the, the question that the Revelation is seeking to answer is, who's right? And of course, spoiler alert, Jesus. But these Christians are living in the middle of that tension, and they're facing real consequences of trying to navigate that tension. Some of them are, some of them are leaning towards Rome, and they're saying, eh, maybe we should just do things Rome's way. Some of them are not, and they're paying the consequences for that. Could that be that the, at least with the Jewish culture, had a rough time understanding the spiritual realm versus the, the natural realm? Because they, they, they lived in the natural realm. They saw everything from the natural realm. Where in Christianity, you're looking from the spiritual side and the natural side. The spiritual side, it is realized, but... Yeah, we still haven't gotten into that, that realm where Jesus establishes kingdom physically on earth. Sure. Uh, yeah, there's probably something to that, though. Again, that would maybe be more the Romans. I mean, they were the ones that really had a hard time separating that. The Jewish people, as you see, we're going to dive into some Old Testament text here in a second. They, they really readily understood that God is king in heaven, but not yet fully king on earth. I mean, they, they did understand that, and you see that throughout the Old Testament as well. So, um that was probably less a problem for them. The, uh, the big problem for a lot of Jewish people then and now is that they just didn't think that Jesus was the Messiah because they said, look, when the, the, the Old Testament's clear, and they call it, they just call it the Bible, right? The Bible's clear about what happens when the Messiah comes, and it is certainly not crawling up on a cross and dying. I mean, that's, you know, that, that's what they would say. And again, we disagree with that, and we look at some prophecies and stuff, but uh, there are, for the Jewish people, that would be the bigger stumbling block for them would be that you're trying to tell me that this that this guy was the Messiah, but like let's let's read through the things that the Messiah is going to do, and it's it's conquer and it's destroy and it's establish, and not in a spiritual sense. I mean, the language that the prophets use is very uh, concrete and very earthly. So that uh, again, now you're right. We have sort of separated that as Christians and say, well, there are two comings. There's this first coming that was all about getting rid of sin, and then there's the second coming that's all about the the final defeat of evil and the establishment of God's kingdom. So. Uh, yeah, I think I think for the Romans though, you're hitting that right. And that the, the the Greek and the Roman cultures had a really tough time with this spiritualized ideas. I mean, for them, there was everything was so this worldly. So good. All right, so let's get into. If you have a Bible with you, open it up to John chapter four. That's or Revelation chapter four. Sorry, that's where we're going to be today. And we are going to go on our trip. 
Um, so again, what has happened so far, let's remember uh, the, the story part of this, is that John has John is on the island of Patmos. Uh, he's exiled there. We're not totally sure why, but it's, it's, uh, it's because of the word of the Lord, whatever that means, some kind of persecution. It's Sunday. He's worshiping, and he all of a sudden hears this voice behind him that says, hey, take down some memos for me. He turns around and sees this cosmic Jesus that's crazy. I mean, just terrifying. He falls down on his face. Jesus says, no, get up. I really need you to write some stuff down. We, he dictates these seven messages to these seven churches that John was a part of. And then that's where we left, left off last time. So, uh, so let's read. I just want to read uh, the first couple of verses here and see what is about to happen. So 4.1 says this. After, I, after this, after he heard all of these letters, I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So John's standing there. He's just, just written these letters down. And then he hears someone say, Come up here. I have to show you some more stuff. And so... Verse 2, at once I was in the Spirit. And then he, he goes on to, to talk about what happens next. So, if you were here the first week, you remember we used a little Wizard of Oz metaphor. And I have a nice little picture here of John. Right, John's down here and he, he looks up and he sees all of this crazy stuff happening up here. And he's about to just go whoop and just straight up into heaven. Okay, so uh, you remember we used this Wizard of Oz metaphor where... Or we showed the movie clip where you had Oz, the great and powerful, terrifying Dorothy and the Tin Man and the Scarecrow and the Cowardly Lion, uh, intimidating them, uh, threatening them, and they're standing there and they're shaking. And then what happens is, of course, Toto runs over and pulls back the curtain, and we see that Oz, the great and powerful and terrible, is actually just a cute little old guy running some machines, and immediately... For Dorothy's little troop, the spell is broken, right? They're no longer terrified. In fact, he keeps trying to he keeps trying to keep the illusion alive, but it's it's over. Uh, they're just not at all scared anymore because they see the truth behind the seemingly terrifying reality. So that's exactly what is happening now in this vision by being taken up to heaven in the spirit by having this prophetic vision. John is going behind the veil of reality. And now through his testimony, we get to see the truth behind what's happening on earth. Okay, so from this point forward, uh, the setting and everything that's going to happen uh, is going to be very important. Uh, this is a story. I found a little image of the someone's artistic rendition of the throne room. Uh, uh, when you read a story... We have to pay attention to things that we're probably not used to paying a lot of attention to when we read the Bible. We need to ask where the, what, what the setting is. Uh, from this point forward, where something happens is going to be really important. Is it happening in heaven in the throne room, or is it happening on earth? Uh, we need to pay attention to who the characters are. Uh, we need to pay attention to the plot. What's the conflict that's being set up? How is that conflict being resolved? What does that mean? Uh, each event that happens causes the next event. And so uh, we need to be paying close attention. And remember, in the ancient world, uh, they thought that things that happened in heaven caused things that happened on earth. Everything that happened that we can see had some invisible cause. And, and we're going to see that played out to dramatic effect uh, in the next several chapters. 
So we're going to go, uh, we're going to go behind the veil with John, and we're going to look at what's happening. So uh, to get us set up for the heavenly throne room, I want to read a couple of uh, Old Testament passages that are being drawn on here. First is Isaiah six one through four, and you can turn there if you want, or you can just listen. I'm going to read them. Uh, now this is uh, this is a passage where Isaiah has uh, where he receives his prophetic call. So in the first four verses, it says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were in attendance above him, each had six wings, and with two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And they call, uh, one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the thresholds shook at the voices of those who called, and the houses filled with smoke. So I have a nice little, uh, and of course, if you know the rest of the story, he gets his lips touched with the coal and all of that. But uh, So Isaiah experiences this vision of the heavenly throne room, right? He sees God seated on a throne and these four creatures around him and, and all of this worship happening. Uh, the other one, much stranger, uh, is Ezekiel chapter 1. And we're not going to read all of chapter 1, but if you want to, you have some spare time this week, it's a good read. Uh, what Ezekiel is going to see is similar, but slightly different. Instead of seeing uh, God on his throne Exactly, he's uh, witnessing, he gets to see the divine chariot of God. Uh, so there's these giant wheels that are turning and all of this stuff. And uh, super fun to do a Google image search of Ezekiel 1 because there are just some truly bizarre uh, images going on here. Uh, UFO specialists, because uh, those exist. Um, this, uh, they, they, say, they say that this chapter is proof that there are UFOs in the Bible because of the giant wheels that are turning in the sky and things like that. But uh, and from an ancient perspective, this was understood to be Yahweh's divine chariot. And then these, uh, there's all these beasts. Uh, anyway, like I said, it's super fun to read sometimes. But let's listen to some. I pulled out a couple of particular pieces that are interesting for what we're about to read in Revelation. So uh, Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 5 through 11 says this. In the middle of it, in the middle of this chariot was something like four living creatures. This was their appearance. They were of human form. Each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot. They sparkled like burnished bronze, which you might remember from uh, chapter 1. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands, and the four, hand, uh, the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another, and each of them moved straight ahead without turning as they moved. As for the appearance of their faces, the four had the face of a human being, the face of a lion on um, face of a lion on the right side, the face of an ox on the left side, and the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above, and each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. Okay, so you, you can hear some similarities between them and the the creatures in Isaiah. Uh, and then skipping down to the end, uh, verses twenty six through twenty eight, uh, we actually get to the one in the middle of all of this. Above the dome over their heads there was something like a throne, an appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was something that seemed like a human form. I love all of Okay, it was sort of like a throne, and they sort of had wings, and there were sort of things like faces. Um, you get this sense that it was strange, right? Uh, upward from what appeared like the loins, I saw something gl- like gleaming amber, and something that looked like fire enclosed all around. And downward from what looked like the loins, I saw something that looked like fire, and there was splendor all around. Like a rainbow was the appearance of the splendor all around. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So again, just lots of 
uh, it was it was a big deal, right? <laughs> okay, so now with all that in mind, I'd like to read for you uh, John's vision of the throne room. What's, what's interesting? Uh, what's interesting as you get into chapter four is this is a this is basically a static scene. There's not actually any action. There's not actually any plot happening. The idea is that, uh, you know, John zips up there in the spirit and he gets up there and he's looking around. And what we have in chapter four is just sort of the thing that's always happening up there. Um, and then cha- when we get into chapter five is when the plot starts, so to speak. So so what we have in chapter four, again, the, the idea behind this is this is just, this just sort of happens all the time in the throne room. So got you a nice picture of it. This is from a church somewhere in Poland. You can't see a lot of it very well, but uh, as, as I read, you can either check out the picture or draw your own or read along with me. So in verse 2, At once I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne, with one seated on the throne. And the one seated there looks like jasper and carnelian, and around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Around the throne are 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones are 24 elders, dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their heads. Coming from the thrones are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And in front of the throne burn seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne there is something like a sea of glass like crystal. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are the four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with a face like a human, and the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and inside. Day and night, without ceasing, they sing, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall before the one who is seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, singing, You are worthy our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So what we have here, you can, you can hear... Uh, how John is drawing on the throne room scenes from Isaiah and from Ezekiel. You can see, you know, we've got the four creatures. We've got the one seated on the throne, and you can't really describe what he looks like, but it's, like, obviously really pretty and amazing, and you've got the rainbow and all of this kind of stuff. Um, Real quick, what did you make of the seven flames, which are the seven spirits of God? We talked about this briefly last week. What is that a symbol of? Yes, Holy Spirit. Very good. Uh, so I just want to throw that in there so we can bring it back later. So uh, so we have the setting is the heavenly throne room. This is a prophetic call vision. Uh, it's similar to what we see in a lot of the other prophets. Uh, the heavenly throne room is actually a pretty common setting in the Old Testament. Uh, more than just Isaiah and Ezekiel end up there from time to time. Ze- uh, Zechariah spends some time up there. and uh, We see it in Job briefly, although Job doesn't get to know about it. But um, So again, if you were uh, an ancient Jewish reader, this particular scene would not have been a surprise to you, right? As soon as John said he was going somewhere, uh, you'd have been like, oh, okay, yeah, we kind of know what's coming, right? Uh, Let's talk about then who the characters are. Uh, Now, I'll give you an easy one first. Any ideas who the one seated on the throne might be? (laughs) Yes, very good. Uh, It is God. Yeah, this is clearly God. He's ruling. And, And something, you know, we think about, we tend to think about heaven as like a place you go when you die, Mostly, but for the ancient 
uh, actually for all ancient peoples, not just the ancient Jews, when they thought of heaven, it was not it was not so much a place of afterlife. It was the place of the gods. And the the best way I have ever figured out to think about it is that it was sort of a control room for Earth. Uh, that's where the gods lived, and they just kind of dictated what happened on Earth. And so uh, again. Not terribly surprising in an ancient culture that they would picture it as a throne room. I mean, how did you run a kingdom? You ran it from the castle, from where the king was, from the throne room. And so, you know, that's where the monarch made decisions. That's where the monarch made pronouncements. That's where the monarch heard petitions, all of those kinds of things. So so a lot of the sovereign activity of earthly realms were in the throne room. Uh, so it's not a big surprise that when we're talking about where is God running everything from, well, it would be imagined as a kind of heavenly throne room. Today, I guess we might say it was like an Oval Office, right? God's in the Oval Office sitting behind his big desk. And when we look at him, we're like, woo, you know, there's congressmen around him or something. I don't know. Um, uh, so let's go to the four creatures next. They're, they're the next most straightforward thing. Now, obviously, they're angelic. Right, they have these wings. They're flying. They're singing uh, songs of worship. But uh, it's interesting that both in Ezekiel and here, they're they're represented as the four creatures that they're represented as. There's a human, a lion, an ox, and a bird. Uh, today, and I, I I always forget to check this before I teach because it keeps changing. Are there still five kingdoms? Or there's like eight or something now? When you when you try anyone who's had biology the most recently, um, you know what I'm talking about is like you know plants, animals. Eukaryotes, prokaryotes, fungus. Anyone know what I'm talking about? When we try to divide up the animal or the the living kingdoms, we had five. I was teaching this one time a couple years ago to some college students, and they're like, "Oh, there's actually like eight now." So, oh, okay. So anyway, that's how we think about breaking down living things, right? We have kingdom, phylum, class, order. Then King Philip came over for green soup. Um, in the ancient world, for the Jewish people, uh, they had four main categories of animals. They had people. Birds, domesticated animals, and undomesticated animals. Super practical, right? Can I use it to plow my fields? No? Okay, it's wild. Um, And you see those four types in these four creatures. And so there's 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 a picture here of the created world. And again, four uh, numerically represents what? Does anyone have their symbol sheet handy? Yeah, four is the earth, right? Okay, so we have four corners of the earth, uh, four points of the compass, that kind of thing. But we also have these four creatures, and then they also happen to represent, uh, they they sort of are placeholders for all of the animal kingdom. And so there's there's this idea that when God is seated on his throne in heaven, which is, again, not some detached, separate place that you just go after you die, but it's actually the control room of the earth, that there are these representations of the created order that are a part of the throne room, that have an integral part to play in the day-to-day workings of heaven. Uh, And we'll get to what that part is in a minute. But that's what those four creatures sort of represent is that they, they are placeholders for the created order. Okay, This will make more sense in a minute. Now let's talk about those elders. Here's what's really interesting about the elders. Everything else in the throne room vision, the rainbow, uh, the torches, the creatures themselves, the throne itself, everything else has some kind of uh, referent in the Old Testament. There's some kind of like, oh yeah, he's drawing from that, oh yeah, he's drawing that. The, the fact that there are 24 of these guys, totally fresh. 
And so it causes commentators no little bit, because everything else is easy, right? They're like, oh, that's Ezekiel, that's Isaiah, that's this, that's that. And then they get, you get to 24, and you're like, ugh. He's doing something new here. He's making a new statement. And so there, you get into all kinds of arguments about what exactly they are and who exactly they're supposed to represent. But uh, again, because this is all symbolic language, I think that the point is that it's not actually you're not actually supposed to be able to tie these guys down to one particular thing. So let's talk about who all they might represent. Let's take some guesses. Now there's 24 of them from your number sheet. Any ideas? Churches. Okay, why would you say that? Why would you say churches? Because it's 12. 12? At least 12 of them and they can be multiplied. Yeah, and what's 2? But what's the number two? Oh, the church. the church of Israel. Okay, so number two, the number two is the church, the the people of God, and twelve obviously is a super biblical number. Uh, you have the twelve tribes of Israel. You also have the twelve apostles, uh, which were meant to represent the twelve tribes of Israel. I mean, when Jesus chose twelve, people weren't like, "Oh, just a random number that he made up off the top of his head." Like they understood, "Oh yeah, twelve tribes, twelve apostles. I get it. He's re you know, he's reforming the nation of Israel." Okay, so yeah, a lot of people have put that together and they've said, "Okay, well these these two numbers, twelve and two, they both uh, echo the church. They they both are the people of God." And so then when you when you put them together like that, it makes a really strong resonant symbol. What else could it be? You do six and four, right? What would that be? What's six? Number of, number of humanity. So if you did six, so you have people, you have four, which is the earth. So what would that mean? I mean, like the people in the world, right? All the people of the earth. Um... What's that? Corners of the earth. Yeah, well, yeah, it's like all the people from all the corners of the earth, right? So you're kind of all of the people. Now, again, because this is heaven, that could be a great interpretation of this. These could be the heavenly representation of humanity. Mm-hmm. And that would make sense because what you what you want, what what's happening in heaven or a better way to say it, heaven is the place where God's will is being done, right? And what is God's will for humanity? To worship him, right? To be with him. And, and what do we find these elders doing? They're worshiping. They're being with him, right? And so so here's where you get into it. Well, do you think it's supposed to represent the people of God or all of the people of the earth? Which one is it? Well, you don't have to choose with the symbolism. It, it can be both. And again... The ideal is that it is both. The ideal is that those two groups groups overlap and that all people would become a part of the kingdom of God. But there's a significance probably in the fact that he said they're all dressed in white. Yes, there is. Which means what? They've had victory over Yes. And not only are they dressed in white, what else are they wearing? Their gold crown. Okay, now, do you remember we've talked a couple times in here about there are two different words for crown in the Greek. Okay, one is that one that means like a diadem, like a, a king would wear. And then the other one's that like athletic crown that you would give as a reward, either for winning a victory, like in an Olympic Games, or if you did something really good for the governor or for the emperor, he might give you, kind of like giving you the key to the city, he might give you like a crown, uh, this kind of crown. Um, the crown that the elders are wearing is that second type of crown. So again, it symbolizes victory, it symbolizes achievement, it symbolizes faithfulness. Um, and so what are they doing with these crowns? Yeah, they're, they're taking them off when they worship, and they're laying them at the feet of the one who is seated on the throne, and they're saying, you are worthy to receive honor and power and glory. You are the one who deserves this stuff. Why? Because 
Why is this? Why is the one seated on the throne worthy? Yeah, what, is, what do they say? I mean, it's part of their... Yeah, you made all of this, and it all belongs to you. Okay, now, this is what's happening in heaven. Is that what's happening on earth? No. <laughs> Not by a long shot. In fact, on earth, you have this empire that is claiming all of these things. They're claiming the earth belongs to them. They're claiming that all of the honor and the power and the glory is theirs. They're claiming that if you want prosperity, if you want peace, you don't lay your crown at the feet of the one seated on the throne. You lay your crown at their feet. Do things their way. And so even though God's will is being done in heaven, it is certainly not being done on earth. And now we're back to that central tension that we identified last week between the seven churches. And we've seen now... If these 24 elders are either the people of God or the whole the whole earth, in either case, they, that is not what's happening on earth right now. Even if it's just the people of God, not all of the people of God are laying their crowns at the feet of the one seated on the throne. We know from the letters that some of them, some of them are sort of sliding them over towards Rome. Right? We saw that last week. So when you put all of this together, you're getting this stark division between what's happening in heaven and what's happening on earth. In heaven, all of creation is worshiping the one seated on the throne, the creator. The one who who made all of it, who lovingly gives himself to all of it. All of creation is involved in worshiping that one. And that's all they do all the time. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then every time they say that, the the elders gathered around, they put their crowns on the ground and say, you are worthy because you created. And that's just just what happens in heaven all the time. That's, That's just what is going on. John sort of interrupts it, right? When he gets up there, he's like, oh. Absolutely. And right now it's not. And so when he tells us to pray that, we are, we are reaching up and grabbing heaven and you know, like bringing it down and saying, okay, God, like this is what we want. We want what's happening up there to be happening down here. And things haven't changed a lot in 2,000 years. It's still not happening on earth yet. Right? Okay, so what's real cool, I think, so powerful, and again, it's hard for us because we have such a beautiful worship facility. Um, but for these these Christians who are gathering in these small homes, uh, usually at night, probably after they've worked a long day because they didn't get days off back then. They didn't even get there's certainly no such thing as a weekend, but they didn't even have a day. You know, maybe they had a Sabbath if they were Jewish Christians. But they're gathering to worship. They've had a long day. They're tired. Uh, probably a long week, a long month, a long year, a long life. They're beaten down. They're oppressed. They're getting together with a few other people. They're singing these songs without the benefit of accompaniment. You know, they they probably don't have a copy of the scriptures that's their own. They certainly don't. They don't have a New Testament because there's no such thing yet. So they're you know they're recounting their favorite stories of Jesus that they heard from whoever planted their church. You know, they're maybe sharing some scriptures from stories in the Old Testament. You can imagine how demoralizing that could get, right? 
mean, you, you, you're gathering in the darkness and the shadows to proclaim Jesus as Lord while in the streets where it's light and easy and fun, Caesar is Lord. And you have to wonder how long you could do that before you would start to just wonder, wonder, am I right? Is Jesus really Lord? Is this all just foolish? And you start to imagine why some of them would maybe be compromising. And then John comes along and he says, I know, I know what it seems like. I know what it seems like when all you can see is this pathetic, dark little space that you're gathered in. But, but can I just take you for just a minute? Can I take you behind the scenes so that you can see what's really happening when you worship? And it doesn't matter when you worship because this is happening all the time in heaven. So right now it's happening. Right now you're joining with this huge angelic chorus and all of creation is gathered and all of the people of God are casting down everything and they're worshiping the one who sits on the throne. And every time you worship, you're caught up in that. Well, that's a little better. That's a little bit more exciting. But there's this big question... And it's why isn't God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven? Well, let's go read chapter 5. This is where this is where it starts getting good. Verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaim with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Okay. So we have this scroll. I have no idea who drew this picture. Someone with an incredibly vivid imagination. So you've got the sealed scroll over here with the seven seals, and you've got John crying down here. Um, and we'll get to the rest of it. Uh, so you have the scroll. Uh, it's being presented as a fairly typical uh, pronouncement from a monarch. Uh, anytime a king wanted to make an announcement, he would make a royal proclamation. He would write it on a scroll. Then they would roll the scroll up and seal it. Uh, wax, they drip wax on it and put the king's signature or, you know, put the king's signet in it so that, uh, when it was taken, you know, if I had to declare it to you guys in the back over there, I would, you know, send it by courier and you take it in. When you saw that the seals were unbroken, you would know that whatever was inside the scroll hadn't been tampered with. They would usually write something on the outside of the scroll to let you know, like, you know, if you had like six of them, you wouldn't want to just guess and sort of hand them out. You'd want to make sure you could, you know. Um, and so that's what's being presented here. The one seated on the throne, the king, the one who created everything, the one who has uh, dibs on the whole world, has a, a pronouncement. He has a, a will. He has something that he wants enacted. But there's a problem. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was found worthy to open the seal. Now, I would ask you to put on your best interpretive cap. What do you think that means? Why can no one open this scroll? What's the problem? Yeah, sin is the problem. Right? Why? And again, if you, if you step outside of the narrative and ask the question that we just asked, 
what's preventing God's will from being done on earth as it is in heaven? What's the sin, right? I mean, that's 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 the problem. And so we have this, we have this, we have God's will, which is to get back to where we started, which was God and humanity together. We know what God's will is, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was worthy to open the seals and to look into the scroll. Uh, okay, sure. Yeah, this is a this is a this is a pretty typical Greco-Roman three-tiered universe. So there's the heavens where the God, where God lives. There's the earth where we all are, and then under the earth would just be like the afterlife. Uh, so Greco-Roman peoples didn't really have a heaven and a hell. Really, I mean, it was it was all it was all fairly uh, vague. Mo- pretty pretty much, unless you were like super super good or really really bad, everyone just kind of went to the same. Hades, the same place. And so really the idea here is just no one who's ever been alive, who is alive right now, and no one in heaven is... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, and again, the message there is there, there never has... It's not like it's not like there was a guy one time and God just didn't get him the scroll in time and he died. And it's like, oh, shoot. You know, she's got in there faster. Uh, and it's like, no, there's never been anyone who is worthy. Now, here's another thing. You already know the answer to this question, so it's not hard, but has anyone noticed who's missing from this heavenly throne room scene? Yeah. Okay, we have the Holy Spirit. We have the one seated on the throne. We have all of creation, and there is this one conspicuous absence for anyone who knows the Christian story, right? Well, okay. We also already know what the answer to sin is, so it sort of ruins the dramatic effect, but it's still cool. <laughs> I have a question about the scroll. What yes. does the scroll really represent? Because to me, it's just like a book. I don't, I don't know. Uh, in, in the hand of a king, it's divine command, or uh, it's it's God's it's, will. Yes, yeah, and, and and not in a not in a uh, like should I go to the store today or not kind of like daily decision kind of will, but God's God's decree for creation for humanity for the world. True yeah, I mean uh, again back to our eschatology discussion at the very beginning. It's it's are are we going to get there or not? Are we going to get to the place where God comes back and everything's put right and and God and and again the, what's kept that since Genesis three has been sent? Well, if we had a symbol today, what would it be? Because I don't really relate uh, the scrolls too well. Uh, yeah, maybe maybe like a. Uh, be a letter from the president. With yeah, I was thinking like a law, like you know, si- signing, you know, signing, signing it into law. You know, the, the, uh, Congress can pass the bill and all of that, but it's not legal until the president signs it into law. I mean, that's sort of the idea. This, the the scroll, whatever's on the scroll, isn't enacted until it's opened and read. Right. Yeah. Right. That's. The, I mean, that's the idea. It was, but somehow it's related to like something good. Versus something bad, or well, I mean, I guess like history. Well, so the question is, do we want do we want what is happening in heaven to be happening on earth? Okay, so um, some sort of uh, thing to have that. I mean, it, it allows that to happen. Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, so, and the idea would be once the scrolls opened and read, then that happens. And the the irony is that no no one is found that can open it. It's like the power for this to happen. Not really, not the force. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, I mean, again, it's symbolic language. So what what John is communicating is that before Jesus' death and resurrection, sin. Okay, power over sin. It's like a roadmap. Yeah, sort of. Nobody knows what the road, what the 
the way to travel is until that's open. Right. And then we get to right. And the thing that's keeping it from being opened is sin. Okay? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was found who was worthy to open the scroll. Could that equate to when Jesus said he didn't come to do away with the law but to fulfill Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, I mean, that's actually, throughout the scriptures, that's Israel's story, right? God tells Israel what to do, and they just keep failing over and over and over again. So Jesus comes as the embodiment of Israel's story, lives perfectly within the law, fulfills the law, and then dies and resurrects to redeem not just Israel, but the whole world, which is Israel's purpose in the first place. When they were formed at Mount Sinai as a nation, it was, you are to be a kingdom of priests. You are to go to the world and bring the world to me. And they, they failed at that over and over and over again. And so Jesus comes, and in John 3, he says, lift me up and I will draw all men to me. Right? So he's, he's, he is fulfilling an Israel story. So, yeah, absolutely. So what we're saying here is only the pure can open that. Because if you don't, you're biased one way or another. Mm-hmm. And the sin will cause you to misread. Mm-hmm. So, so here we go. We're going to meet Jesus. So John's crying, right? He's, I mean, he's, he's mourning. He's mourning that no one can open the scroll. He's mourning that the end cannot come. He's mourning all of this. Rightfully so. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So we get... This great, and again, if you can imagine this with your mind's eye, it's an incredibly wonderful piece of dramatic fiction. Because you have this heavenly throne room scene, you have the scroll, you have no one is able to open it, and John is weeping and lamenting, and one of the elders actually stops in the middle of what he's doing, and he says, No, it's okay. Look over there. The lion of the tribe of Judah. He's come conquering. And again, if you're one of those poor Christians who's all beaten up and defenseless, a conquering lion doesn't sound so bad about now. You're like, it's about time that Aslan showed up and took care of some business. Right? I mean, that's, that's exciting for you. And so you can, just, you can imagine, like, everyone in the audience looks with John, and they're like, let's see this lion. And I found the coolest picture of a lion that I could possibly find. Okay? Pretty cool. Pretty hot. So let's hear what he says. Then... I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Okay, this is one of those like wah, wah moments. So you're expecting the lion of the tribe of Judah. And what you get instead is a dead lamb that's not actually dead. And it has seven eyes. <laughs> uh... This is a shocking image. At least it's supposed to be. Because there's a huge difference between a lion and a lamb. And if you are beaten up and persecuted and beat down, and someone says, well, I got two things that can help you. You can have this lion or you can have this lamb. No one chooses the lamb. Why? I I guess if you throw it at them and run away, like it might buy you a couple seconds. But other than that, it cannot do anything. It's It's too gentle. And so when Jesus is revealed, it's an incredibly disruptive moment. Because instead of 
the lion of the tribe of Judah come conquering, you get a slaughtered lamb. And of course, of course, this is referring to Jesus' crucifixion. But that makes a powerful statement about the difference between Jesus' eschatology and Rome's eschatology. Because Rome says, if you do not follow our way, we will kill you. And Rome had a particularly ugly and public way of killing would-be kings. If you tried to set up a kingdom that was not Rome's kingdom, they would strip you naked, they would beat you to within an inch of your life, and then they would throw a huge party for the whole city. And they would have this big parade in the middle of it. And they would march you straight through the middle of the parade so that everyone in the town could see you, naked, beaten, completely powerless. And then in full view of everyone, they would crucify you and leave you to hang there until you died. Now, my question is, why would they do that? Why not just run you through with a sword and be done with it? Yeah, yeah. And in other words, we can ask, who's the crucifixion for? It's not for the pretender king. It's for everyone else. It's their way of upholding the Pax Romana. See what happens when you don't follow the way of Rome? See? Do you see? We've been telling you. You follow our way and you get peace and prosperity. You don't, and it's bad. Look how bad it gets. Is this what you want? Of course that's not what you want. You want peace and prosperity. You want the Pax Romana, don't you? Yes, we do. (laughs) But that was pretty much the biggest weapon Rome had. If you can overcome death, Rome doesn't have a lot to throw at you anymore. And so Jesus conquers... Not with a sword, not by outroaming Rome, but by saying, okay, give me the worst you got. I'll take it. Nebuchadnezzar's uh, idol that he saw, you know, with the symbolism of the gold and the brass and the, the iron and all that, to, to have the, the rock that was not cut out with human hands come and crush the entire idol was a perfect example of this. So they had the image of what was going to happen already given to them through that prophecy in yes. Daniel. But this would be another way of trying to explain that. Yep. Absolutely. And so we find out that if you are a persecuted Christian living in the Roman Empire, wondering whether you should give in to the peace of Rome or follow the peace of Christ... This answers that question for you. Right? Well, and we saw this last week with Smyrna. We're not necessarily going to be spared from the first death. But, if you remain faithful, you will not be harmed by the second death. And so here, if you follow the lamb who was slain and yet lives then resurrection is God's affirmation that Rome cannot have the last word in your life. 
that God's eschatology really is the one that wins the day. That even if Rome does their absolute worst to you, God is faithful. And so if you're wondering whether you should cave and follow Rome's way or stay faithful, even if it costs you your life, here's what's happening behind the scenes. The other uh, typology, I guess, is to the Paschal Lamb. Yes. That would be the, the importance of having the yes. And let's review, when did Passover happen? Who who was that? Who are they being rescued from? Yeah, an evil empire. Right? And how did that happen? Not by raising up an army. The slaughtering of the lamb. So again, we see this this is a pattern for God's people over and over throughout the scriptures. You were right to observe even with Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire, right? The ones that destroyed the temple and took them into exile. Even that even that had to pass. And God was faithful to his people through that. So let's read the response. Uh, uh, beginning in verse 7. The lamb went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. And then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, singing with full voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. The reason that the Lamb is worthy is because he was slaughtered. The reason that he receives all of this is that he was faithful even to the point of death. And so God was faithful to him even through the resurrection. And so to all of those churches, wondering, struggling, this this is the beginning of what John shows them is going on behind the scenes. This is how it starts. I mean, we can only imagine how powerful and how encouraging that message would have been for them. So uh, I want to talk about a few things as far as wrapping up this section. Um, first of all, this, these two chapters make a powerful statement about what happens when we worship. When we gather to worship, we are participating in the cosmic worship of the all-sovereign creator. Whether that's driving our cars, singing along to a CD, whether that's reading our scriptures at home, whether that's praying around a meal, whether that's gathering on a Sunday. Because this is happening in heaven all the time. And so every time we gather to worship, we are being caught up 
in that eternal cosmic worship gathering. Second, and again, this is, I think, incredibly powerful for the churches. Uh, God, not Rome, is the center of the universe. I mean, it, I wish I wish we had a billion more hours to talk about all of the things that Rome did <coughs> to make the world revolve around them. Uh, they're the ones that switched over to a solar calendar instead of a lunar calendar. So when Rome came and conquered you, you had to get a whole new calendar, a whole new way of measuring time. Uh-huh. We have a hard enough time with daylight savings time twice a year, right? I mean, can, I mean, can you imagine just having to switch over to a whole different system, whole new holidays and all of that? Because they said, we don't care how you did it before. The center of the universe, the cosmic axis around which everything turns, around which reality turns, runs right through Rome. And so we tell you how time works. We tell you what seasons are. We tell you what sacred holidays are. We tell you which gods actually protect you. Roma was all, you know, uh, we've had some pictures of her before. She's always pictured sprawled out on a big throne, right, with all of this lush bounty around her. And that's what they saw all the time. It was on their coins. It was on their uh, civic buildings. It was everywhere. And so John gives them this alternative picture. He's like, ah, let's pull back the curtain. Let's take a look at who's really on the throne. And again, for those churches that are struggling, that are suffering, it's such a powerful affirmation that no, 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 no. God knows what's going on. And God will not let you down. God will be faithful. And finally, I think arguably the most important point is that if you are truly worshiping, if you are really joining in with that worship that's happening in heaven, then you are affirming the weakness through which Jesus conquered. You are affirming it is not the crucifying way of Rome that wins the day. It is the strength through weakness. That's, that's, what, that's what really works. That's what really brings about the end of all things. That's what really accomplishes the peace and the prosperity that we all want. Not the sword, not Rome, not all of their promises. And we're, next week we're actually going to take the Pax Romana on head to head. But we see the beginnings of it right here. Right? Look, Rome had a shot at that dude. And it didn't work. They did their very worst to him. He's bad. So whose side do you want to be on? And again, this is a message to the churches. The, the typology just, you know, I'm, I'm seeing it from the beginning all the way through. You saw where uh, it wasn't by man's strength that Israel came out of Egypt, but by God's power. When Sennacherib was wanting to take over Jerusalem, it wasn't by Hezekiah's. I mean, they sent their singers out in front of everybody, and and Assyria was totally annihilated at that point, or decimated, and they were saved. But it was always through the power of God. Never once did he, well, Gideon. Gideon was not allowed to take the troops that he had available to him. He had to go with three hundred people to be able to take on the, the all the hordes that were against him. And God always did that to make sure that we understood. It's him yeah. that is the strength and the power, and not us. Yeah. 
Yes, absolutely. And you're right, that's a pattern that's consistent throughout the scriptures. That God says, the weakest person in the world is strong enough when I'm on their side. Uh, Samson, strongest person in the world. Weakest. Because he tried to do it himself. And we, I can't help but think about the, the letter to the Laodiceans, where God said, you think that you're so good. You think you have everything you need, and you don't know that you're poor, wretched, blind, naked, and miserable. You don't even know. You need to wake up. You need my gold. You need my robes. You need my eye salve. Because what you have isn't anything. So, uh, so we have a good amount of time left. And I would like to spend a lot of that in uh, beginning the process of talking about what this means for us. I found this nice little map of Beaver Creek uh, right there. Um, so uh, a few questions to guide us. Uh, first of all, uh, how does this affect how we worship? Will this change how you worship? Uh, should it affect how the things that we do, uh, even in our worship gatherings? Should be like John. How so? Okay, good, yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, let's talk about that a little bit. What that's a great image. So what what are some what are what are those crowns that we have in our lives? Okay, sure. Well, but uh, you know, the thing is that those crowns that they had were good things. I mean, they were. They were they were rewards for faithfulness, for achievement, for victory. So, um, I certainly I certainly agree with you. We can take pride, wrongful pride in those things, but you know, there's something really there's something really cool about this idea that when we gather on Sundays, what we're all doing, and obviously this is easier when you had a house church of 10 people instead of a church of 600 people or whatever. But, you know, when everyone comes together on a Sunday, everyone brings what they're good at, the things that God has gifted them with. And they they give those over to the community and they say, look, well, here's what I got. And it's, it's, all, it's all for God. You know, here we go. Uh, I mean, obviously this is kind of a, a parallel to what Paul talks about with spiritual gifts. Right, where everyone sits around and they contribute those things that God has gifted them and given them. And it's not for me, it's not for building myself up, it's for the edification of the community. You know, and, and I think I think there's this is a kind of a parallel picture of that. When I take my crown, the things that, that the good things that God has gifted me with, or the achievements that I've gained in my life or whatever, and then I give those over to my community. Um, so we'd be proud of your talents. Sure. The things he gave you, you return back. Yeah. You know, and I you know when people are serving, when we worship, I think that's it. You know, our people who teach Sunday school or who volunteer in our different areas, uh, I think those are great examples of that. You know, I, uh, I think one of one of the things that I'm consistently frustrated by, and obviously I'm one of the people that has a hand in planning our worship gatherings, and I just don't know an easy way to fix this, is that when you look at, like, the percentages of our congregation, like what percent of people are involved in putting on a Sunday morning, it's very low. It's like, Five percent, ten percent, maybe if we have like a busy Sunday or something. But like, it's it's far from a hundred percent. It's not even close to fifty percent. You know, and I, I just kind of wonder, like, what what would it look like if we were a church that was really intentional about saying, you know, everyone who's no, we're not going to 
you know, give visitors a personality quiz and put them to work on the first day, you know, but, but everyone who's a, a consistent part of our gathering, who people who are coming, who are a part of this community, who are pouring into this, like, and, and they're always engaged or they're usually engaged in whatever, whatever they're good at, you know, and that's obviously going to be super different for everyone. But they have just—they just have this thing that they love. That's a part of them. They know it's something that God has hardwired into them, and that they just love to do. And then they get to do it as a part of worship. You know, I—I I, I don't know. Again, obviously, I don't know what that would look like, or we'd probably be doing a lot more of it. But um, I every—I can never read this passage without thinking about that, and just saying, what you know, what could that be? And obviously, you know, we have a choir, we have a band, we have stuff like that. So the musical people at least have some kind of an outlet. But you know, lots of us are not. Especially musically talented, <laughs> and so what about what about everyone else? You know what? Uh, um, I don't, and I don't know. Like I, it's just I'm just letting you guys in on some of the conversations I have with myself all the time as a you know as a person who's in leadership here. How many people do you think really know what their gifts are? A great question. I don't know. Probably not as many as we could educate about that and help them to discover those things. I also find that there are a lot of people that belittle their own gift. Here's the, the, the funny thing about it, if you have a talent, a lot of times you don't really realize it's a talent because you can just do it. And people that can't do it look at you and they go, I just can't believe how amazingly talented that person is. But you don't know it's a talent because you've just always been able to do it. And it's not particularly interesting to you. You're like, oh, I, just, I, can just, I just do this. You know, get sure. Yeah, they never get mm-hmm. the opportunity, you know, to develop their gifts. Our yep. educational system today has a tendency to do that. Yes. Or we may know what our talents are and not know how to apply them in the church. Yes, absolutely. Huge problem. In Ephesians, it talks about the fivefold ministry, and people look at that the fivefold ministry of as the ones that should be operating churches and, and mandating how things go, but they failed to, to look at it a little closer and see that the purpose of the fivefold ministry was to equip the saints yes. so that they can walk in the image of Christ yes. and touch the world. So it's it's we want to point the fingers over and say, well they're not educating us enough when in reality it's it's the body of Christ that's not stepping up and accepting what they're supposed to be. Sure. Yeah, and I, I struggle with that on both ends. I, I struggle with uh, someone who's again sort of at the at the top, running like pulling strings and stuff, along with our you know our whole staff and our, our leadership and all of that. But you know, we we could obviously be doing a better job at equipping people. Uh, but then on the other end of it, you're absolutely right. Like, there's also this like, well, at some point, people just have to step up and say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this and. If I've never done it before, I'm not going to do a very good job because that's what happens when you're learning to do something. You mess up a few times, you get up, and you keep going. I mean, all of us, I I guess I assume most of us can ride a bike. Like, you get scrapes. You fall down. You get back up. Uh, A friend of mine is teaching his kid to ride a bike, and apparently they have this new wheel now that has a gyroscope in it. And if you set it on its highest setting, like, the bike won't, you just set the bike on the ground, and it won't fall over. And he said, he, he was like, I don't think I want to get that because I, I I think he needs to learn how to fall down, you know. And I I'm a huge advocate of that. I, I'm not a fan of everyone gets a trophy. I'm not you know. I remember vividly coming in 11th place in my baseball league, and I got a trophy, and it was this big. And the first place people had a trophy that was this big, and I remember the the stench of shame that hung over me as I looked down the row at their first place trophy and. 
Yeah, and, and it's exactly like, hey, why do we fall? So we learn how to get back up, you know? So we learn that, uh, we learn what redemption is. We learn all of these kinds of things. And, uh, I don't know, that was a huge tangent, but... Um, all I'd say, you know, I think, I think, I think maybe sometimes the church isn't a safe place to fail. You know, if someone, if someone messes something up one time, instead of, instead of people laughing it off or encouraging them or whatever, we judge. Like, oh, I can't believe they let that person do that. Okay. So, and then again, if all, all of that is hopefully to point us back to this idea of how do we get to a place where everyone is participating in worship, not just consuming it, not just coming to be fed, not just coming to be... Because, again, that's not what the elders are doing, right? They're not, like, sitting in their thrones being like, feed me, God, hope it's, hope it's good this week. Um, they're participating, they're worshiping, they're giving, right? All of them. So... But they did things in unison, too. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. They sang oh. and yep. they said their... Yeah, we're not calling for we're not calling for like anarchy Sundays yeah. when everyone just sort of comes in and sings whatever song they want or anything like no 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 absolutely not. Um, uh, yeah, so okay, well, welcome to how difficult a discussion this is in my head. I'm glad that I'm glad that someone wasn't like well obviously the answer is this stupid and had the right answer. All stood up together. <laughs> yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Okay, we will be coming back to these, this question a lot. I want to go on to one more question. Um, this one's going to be a little bit more feisty, probably, so everyone play nice. Um, what rival eschatologies do we see today? Who promises us peace and prosperity? Who promises to end suffering? Um, what, where do we hear these messages in our culture? And yes, I know that there's an election coming up, so I expect those answers. <laughs> I know, right? Oh, look at the time, gosh. Okay. No, this, I mean, this is a real question. And we're gonna we're gonna dig through this, and it's not the last time it's gonna come up. So, um, again, <laughs> we do, don't we? Yeah, we get it from a lot. Yes, yeah. We're not blaming one political party. We're not blaming one country. You are absolutely right. You cannot get away from these messages. Everybody's claiming it, but nobody can fulfill the promise. Now that is a fantastic answer. They don't know it. <laughs> Yes, one at a time. <laughs> Why can't they fulfill that promise? They don't have the power. Yes. They can't open a scroll. They're, they're, they're a sinful nature in their own being. Yes. If you were clean, then you could make that decision. Only, only the Lamb of God is clean enough to make a yes. decision like that. He's the only one that can open the scroll. Yes. Yes. So, like I said, you would have your own purpose. Yes. Intentions when you say this. And the ones we do now is all they do at force is get reelected. Mm-hmm. Well, and they say that in a perfect world, this would work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it, it is important for us as Christians to be able to identify eschatological claims. Say, mm, that's not something you can do. Actually, now that doesn't mean I'm not going to vote for you. It doesn't mean that I should totally abandon your political process. But it does mean that we listen with ears that hear. And we see with eyes that are open. And we understand what things human governments can accomplish and what things they cannot accomplish, whatever their ideology. And I think it changes how we participate in our political system. We understand that there's no such thing as a candidate who's going to ride in on a white horse 
and fix everything. Because the problem that's the real problem is not a problem that they can fix. And so that, again, that, that doesn't mean we don't vote. That doesn't mean that we don't back a particular candidate. But it does mean that we know where our real hope lies and we are uh, critical about the kinds of promises we will buy into. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, I was trying to think, like, do we have a modern-day version of the Pax Romana and that we could identify? And the closest thing that I could imagine was something like, the, you know, the New Deal. Um, and, again, it's, it's not perfect, but when, when, when most of us today look back at FDR, it's with it's, – it, he, he was a great leader, and we just need someone like him again. And, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're Democrat or Republican. Like, you respect the guy. And um, the New Deal, like, again – for the most part, everyone now uh, looks back on it and says, man, that like it got us out of the Depression. And, again, we might not agree with every little bit of it. But, um, but you know, all of that rhetoric kind of – again, whether, whether that's actually true or not, like that's the kind of rhetoric that surrounds all of that. And so, again, I, I was trying to think of a, like a really good contemporary example of that, and that was the, that was the, the best thing I could come up with. Um, it's sort of trite, but you get an awful lot of that just out of the commercials. Well, if you yes. eat the right foods or go to the right mm-hmm. place, uh, buy, drive the right car, all those are in, implic, implicit of how you're going to come out better. Mm-hmm. So it's not a long-haul eschatology, but it's it's still something we wrestle with day yep. in and day out. Yep. Yeah, you and, and it's it's always interesting, I think. What what advertising is selling you is never the product, right? It's, what the, it's how the product's going to make you feel, which is good. Whether that's you'll feel good because you're uh, sexy or you'll feel good because you're smarter or you'll feel good because you'll have a certain kind of look and people will envy you and so you'll be envied. You know, it's always selling you what's behind the product. And it's always, as you rightly, again, always a false promise. Yeah, you're worth it. Yeah, right? Uh, this week in, uh, in my sermon, we're, we're looking at a plastic surgery ad that says, uh, look as young as you feel. You know, it's this idea that, like, well, the real you is is young and beautiful. And so the outside you, we, we can, you're like Play-Doh. You know, we can just, we can make you look like the real you, which is a foolish claim um, for uh, way more reasons than we have time to get into. <laughs> um, but, but again, yeah, if we, if we can really understand uh, what Revelation is doing and how it's presenting such an alternative way of understanding the world and what the path to human happiness is, where fulfillment lies, uh, it, it changes how we look at everything. Uh, again, it pulls back the curtain on everything from politics to advertising, right? And we say, oh, okay, we see what's really going on here. It's money, we all know that. <laughs> <laughs> right, and does money buy happiness? Well, um, according to certain eschatologies, yes, Right. Um, not according to the revelation. Again, spoiler alert. So, okay, for next week, again, we're going to come back to all of this stuff, so don't worry about it. Uh, we're, we are far from done with any of these conversations. Uh, read chapter 6 and 7. This is the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse and what follows from there, so super exciting. Um, again, pay attention to the setting. What's happening where? How is what's happening in heaven connected to what's happening on earth? Uh, you'll start to see, uh, because this week we were all up in heaven, right? So we really didn't see anything happening back down on earth. But next week it's going to start bouncing back and forth. And so you'll start to see those relationships. 
Uh, after that, then a great question. How many characters can you identify? What do you make of the Four Horsemen? Just fun. Just try it. See see how good you're getting at reading this book. And then, again, just for fun, what's confusing? What's clear? Uh, what are the things that you are beginning to resonate with, that you're beginning to identify some themes? And then what are the stuff that you're scratching your head going, hi. Hey, Wow, I just don't have a clue why that lamb had seven eyes. That was weird. Um, uh, good. Any closing thoughts, questions, comments? It's kind of exciting when you go into Daniel, the last chapter there, where Daniel basically said, don't worry about it. It's not meant for you to understand it, but it's for that last age. Yeah. And we're it. So all the, all the symbiology and everything that was there in Scripture... It's meant for us to understand. And it's actually meant for us to dig in to understand. Yeah. Again, back to discernment. Without that knowledge, you can't discern. Absolutely. Good. Anything else? Other thoughts? All right, let's pray together. God, we are grateful, as always, for the chance to gather and to study your scriptures. Uh, Today we were caught up with John into heaven and we got to see uh, what is happening even right now, even as we were gathered and studying your scriptures, what was happening all around us as the creatures were calling out, holy, holy, holy are you, and worthy are you, because you created all of this. And we want to be a people uh, that worships you. Uh, in spirit and in truth that worships you the way those elders worship where we we take those good things that you've given us and we lay them at your feet and we use them uh, to serve you, to respond to you, uh, to all that you've done for us. So we ask as we go out this week that you would open our eyes and open our ears to the many eschatologies that are being communicated around us. Um, We ask that you would give us a discerning spirit that we would know how to respond uh, in the way that Jesus responded. We want to follow the lamb who was slain, uh, the lion who conquered by dying. Uh, We don't want to follow the way of Rome. We don't want to follow all of these false eschatologies that make promises they can't fulfill. And so we ask that this week you would make us aware of those things. Uh, Again, we're grateful to gather. We're grateful for the opportunity to be spurred on by brothers and sisters who are on this journey with us. Um, We're grateful for the opportunity to contribute our gifts and talents. And we pray all of these things uh, in the name of your son, Jesus. Thank you, everyone.